Hello there. Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? The state-run establishment is almost as discredited as the pathetic degree people. And right now, the center-right, in my opinion, my opinion is doing what I call the Tinder strategy, is that they come to find a candidate, so they keep on swiping the right until someone matches. That's awesome. That's an awesome This year, Brazil faces its first general election since the soft coup that deposed the Workers' Party's Dilma Rousseff two years ago. The general tumult only seems to be increasing. Against a backdrop of intense political polarization and a worsening public security situation, two events have shaken Brazil in the past two weeks. First, Marielle Franco was assassinated two weeks ago. The city councillor for the Party of Socialism and Liberty in Rio was a rising star of the left, part of a new generation of activists. She was an opponent of the murderous military police that kills thousands in Rio every year, and of the recent military intervention in Rio State. Rio has been facing a security and economic crisis since its famed pacification campaign ended in disaster and the city went bankrupt after having been robbed blind by its former governor. In the last local elections, a left candidate of the PSOL party, Marcelo Freixo, came a respectable close second to the current mayor, who's an evangelical pastor. In this climate, there's been a collapse in public security, turning Rio once again into the poster child for the Brazilian crisis. This follows a marked increase in the level of political violence since the 2016 parliamentary coup that has seen dozens of social movement leaders, environmentalists, and rural activists brutally murdered with impunity, or in most cases probably done so by the police. Who killed Marielle is unknown, but it was a professional hit likely carried out by local militias who are composed of current and former police. It shocked the country seemingly a tipping point in the ongoing violence primarily directed at black and poor Brazilians. It led to large protests demanding justice across the country. The news garnered over 2 million tweets in Brazil in the days following the assassination, and uniquely it also went global, with 3.6 million tweets in 34 languages in less than two days. It made the cover of the Washington Post, with the paper calling her a global symbol. Meanwhile, back in Brazil, the right used social media to spread rumors claiming that she was married to a leading drug trafficker and had been elected by a drug gang. But the coverage also seemed to depoliticize the event. Brazil's big media treated her as a mere human rights activist, evacuating the content of her socialist politics. Internationally as well, it seemed to be reduced to a Black Lives Matter-style concern, Marielle another black victim of the police. With Katy Perry honoring her at a show and Naomi Campbell tweeting about her, it seemed that the specific Brazilian context and Marielle's politics was being lost. Then another event. This week, former President Lula's so-called caravan touring the country for pre-election rallies was shot at. No one was hurt, but it was a frightening escalation of the intimidation faced by Lula's roadshow, where previously his buses had been pelted with eggs and rocks. Even more concerning was the reaction of the center-right governor of Sao Paulo state and presidential candidate, who stated that the Workers' Party is reaping what it sowed, suggesting the shots were payback for the divisive rhetoric of us and them. Is this not explicitly saying that if you pursue class politics, then you deserve violence in return? And is that not a close approximation of the very definition of fascism? The sad irony is that the Workers' Party in government had been conciliatory to a fault, governing from the centre and stitching up alliances with the dodgiest cartel parties in the country. If an even nominally moderate politician, such as Sao Paulo state governor, can make such a statement, what does this say about the rightward drift in Brazilian politics? 
Does the context of hostility to the Workers' Party and the left more broadly have any relation to Marielli's assassination? Is there a growing fascism in Brazil, as some on the left warn? And more broadly, as we have seen elsewhere in the world, if even moderate social democracy has become intolerable to elites, then what next? Joining us this week is Sabrina Fernandes, a militant intellectual of the radical left here in Brazil, the producer of the YouTube channel Tese Onzi, or Thesis 11, and a contributing editor at Jacobin Magazine. Sabrina also has a book due to be published later this year by Autonomia Literaria, based on her thesis about the fragmentation of the Brazilian left. The first hour will feature our interview with Sabrina, and then we'll have a short chat amongst ourselves, drawing out the broader global implications of what we just heard. All right, Sabrina, thanks for joining us. Uh, this is Alex here. I'm here in Sao Paulo with Ben. How's it? And we've got George in London. Hello. Hi. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Hi, Alex, Ben and George. <laughs> All right, thanks for being with us. Um, so let's get started and, and dive in straight into the question of Marielli's assassination. Who do you think is responsible and what is the dynamic behind it? Well, most of everyone have been like people have been pointing out to the militia in Rio. It's really strong. There was uh, another uh, multiple murders. There were multiple murders over the weekend in Marica, in Rio de Janeiro as well. Five young men were killed and uh, the police have been investigating and they've said it pro- it's probably the militia too. So if it's the militia, I wouldn't consider it... Um, a death uh, that resulted from the rise of fascism or something like that in Brazil. Uh, rather, it's something more related to the type of political work that Marielle was doing. Uh, she had been denouncing police violence for quite a while, actually. Um, she started working in Marcelo Freixo's mandate uh, a while back before she got elected city councilor. And when she did that she was already denouncing police violence so there's a trend there Uh, the difference is that in the past few weeks she had been very active and saying names basically Uh, and it's something that actually happens in Brazil it's not new it's new in the sense that Marielle was um, had a lot of visibility she was a city councillor she was elected by about 50,000 people in the city of Rio so the fifth most voted city councillor in the last election uh, she was really well liked and she was well known for her uh, human rights work but it's not just human rights right it's, it's human rights from a socialist perspective which makes it in, even more impactful but the things that we've had deaths related to militia of important people in the past um, one could think of Judge Patricia Scioli in 2011 in Niterói. Um, we have uh, policemen who have been arrested and convicted of her death. Uh, they were involved in the militia and she was investigated in the militia. So it's important not to disconnect Marielle's death from the militia situation in Rio, which is a particular situation around power and militarization and I bet that those who have seen uh, Elite Squad 2 uh, are going to be able to tell the difference. Um, can you just expand for our listeners uh, about what exactly the militias are and what is exactly the power dynamic and their role in uh, the current securitization of Rio? Uh, the militias are basically a parallel police force. Uh, they usually charge to do uh, particular security work. So they get into a, an area and they're really organized and they say, okay, we're going to protect you, but we're going to charge. And then if people don't pay, 
their particular fee, then usually they become the target. So it's about uh, enforcing enforcing power on people and charging for it. Um, in a lot of areas, uh, they become they become quite common because as soon as the police units, known as the, the pacifying police units in Rio, they've uh, they've gone more established. Militias also uh, began rising with them because drug dealing became harder and usually it had to deal, um, the drug dealers had to uh, deal with the corrupt cops more often and pay them off to make sure that uh, the drugs kept running through the favelas. And to do, by doing so, then you ended up getting more corrupt cops and they became more organized and the consequence of that organization is actually the militias. To so, make it to make it very very simple actually, but it's more complex. But in uh, to sum it up, it's something like that. Yeah, I mean, so the, one thing that we're gonna think talk a lot about over the over the coming hour is something that's called enchipechismo. So for 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 foreign yes. listeners, it's um, hostility to the workers' party, um, PT, and uh, probably to the wider left as well. You say that the assassination of Marielle was more driven by these local dynamics with regard to militias, crime, and so on. Um, what do you think Anchipichismo played any part in kind of at least um, giving license to such a kind of quite high-profile assassination? Antipatismo and anti-leftism in Brazil plays a part in uh, legitimizing this process. Right. Uh, even though I wouldn't say it was what pulled the trigger, I believe it's more related to the kind of work that Marielle was doing as a city councilor. Um, but the way her death became legitimized uh, in the media and fake news that were propagated everywhere, right-wing social movements were responsible for propagating these fake news as well. We had a lot of YouTube channels with very defamatory videos about about her. So all of that had a sense in terms of like, well, if you do human rights work, you're probably a lousy person and you deserve to die. Uh, as soon as she got, uh, as, as soon as we got news of her murder, a lot of people online, they were actually saying, well, that this is what you get for defending criminals. Then you end, end up dead in the hands of criminals. And then all of a sudden, well, they were referring to, you know, the poor people more, uh, more often than not innocent poor people that Marielle used to defend um, because there's a lot of prejudice in, in Brazilian society related to that. We have a problem with public security. We do have a problem with violence and criminality, but uh, usually um, the, you know, the, the um, punitivist populism that we have going around in our common sense, uh, they lead people to criminalize the poor in general and really hate uh, human rights stock, even though Marielle's job uh, and her life work uh, went way beyond, you know, the definition of human rights. It was really about emancipation and defending people's right to live. Uh, so a lot of people, they just got uh, involved in this hate speech around it and they tried to tie Marielle to uh, she was probably involved in bad things so she deserved to die. That kind of rationality is very tied to anti-leftism in Brazil in terms of uh, who deserves what and who is the good um, the good citizen, right? They say like cidadão de bem and this idea of the good citizen is usually a very um, white, male, conservative, uh, homophobic and 
and uh, he's going to protect his family at all costs and he's uh, very faithful to God but at the same time when you look into his life he's been doing um, morally wrong things all over right but she, he's just really good at hiding it mm -hmm. and this is the the notion of the the good citizen in Brazil and, and this is the kind of person um, who's benefiting from this wave of conservatism and they help to propagate anti-leftism and anti-petismo and you can see that in the repercussion around Marielle's murder. So not exactly the cause of death, but what was done with it. And that's why there was a, a really big after effort by the left, and not just PSOL, Marielle's por, uh, party, but the left in general, to try to recover her image and show people that they had no idea what they're talking about. And then it's just absurd uh, for them to be throwing hate at this when there was like a person's uh, life uh, in the game and not just her life, Anderson, uh, a life's, uh, Anderson's life as well, uh, the, the guy who was driving the car. Uh, so this is really important to like keep denouncing these things because the tendency with antipatismo is for people to just put everything in one pot and just blame leftists for whatever happens and this is exactly what happened this week when uh, there were shots fired against uh, Lula's caravan in the south you had Alchemin the governor of the state of Sao Paulo one of the most influential people in the country just say that well the PT was just ripping what, what they were sowing right so yeah. th this is really problematic yeah, and that was a particularly outrageous statement. But um, also just specifically in relation to Marielle, we saw a huge number of rumors spread online um, trying to tie her to drug trafficking and so on, as, as you mentioned. And I mean, just for, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, the sort of whole fake news and uh, Facebook propagation of fake news Ferrari, which um, dominated the kind of news cycle in the US and, and in Europe, also affected Brazil, actually. And this was, a, this was one particular example of it. Um, but I did want to come to um, something that you've already hinted to, um, which is PESOL and Marielle's role in it. So what is PESOL doing on the ground in relation to poli policing in Rio and the military intervention there? Um, you've mentioned also the history of threats directed at PESOL activists. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this. Well, the party is very strong in Rio. Uh, some would say it's stronger than the Workers' Party, actually, because the Workers' Party uh, had always been tied to the MDB, right? So, like, Michel Temer's party. And uh, they've done a really, really lousy, terrible job, actually, in Rio. So, tied to a lot of corruption, uh, uh, Cabral, Pezão, all of these names uh, uh, that, that are from the PMDB, but are tied to the PT in Rio, um, they've made the PT look really bad. And the uh, worst thing is that the PT tried to keep those alliances until the end. Uh, we saw this uh, including in the past city election in 2016. So the, the PT uh, got weaker with time there. Yeah and the PSOL took over some of this uh, base building work. It's still nothing compared to what the party could be doing in terms of reaching out, but there are other barriers to it, uh, such as uh, um, fundamentalists, you know, in terms of religion, and th that's what got Crivella, the, the bishop, the uh, Protestant bishop, elected last time and things like that. But the PSOL ha has been involved in a lot of things. Part of this is related to Marcelo Freixo, He's one of the state congressmen from PSOL in Rio. Uh, he used to be a city councillor, and he did a lot of uh, work related to investigating the militias, right? So there was a proper investigation uh, going through the city, and Marcelo Freixo was the leader on that. Inclu uh, actually, like, if you watch Elite Squad 2, there is a character there that's 
supposed to be based off him. And uh, because of this, um, the PSOL has had has played an interesting part in denouncing these things in Rio, denouncing police violence in the favelas, denouncing the problems with the war on drugs, uh, uh, being very clear about the fact that the war on drugs in Brazil is really a war on poor people, is a war on black people. So they've been really important uh, on this. And Marielle's life, uh, throughout her life, before she joined the PSOL, she used to do activism in that area. And when she joined Marcelo Freixo's mandate, um, as part of the, the Human Rights Commission of his mandate, she was involved in this. And she was helping out people who were wrongly convicted there was a police persecution but even the lives of um the lives of uh, policemen who were uh, shot and their families and things like that so they were actually denouncing you know the out of control militarized violence in rio so pessoal is quite known at least in the city of uh, rio because of this and um it's the part of the work that they're trying to show matters that uh, Marielle was not a simple human rights activist. She really knew what she was doing. She wrote uh, her her MA uh, dissertation on this and she like she had been talking uh, about this for a really long time and Pessoa had been talking about this for a really long time even though it's still considered something like a petit bourgeois leftist party because it has a lot of uh, university people involved in it and intellectuals it doesn't have that much of like a popular base as the PT used to have organically we don't know that much anymore it has declined for the PT but the, the PSO is not quite there yet but it was certainly trying to do the work of defending those people so um, broadening this out a little bit, do you think that the massive impact this um, events had in Brazil is going to lead to some sort of fundamental change in popular consciousness? Do you think it's going to be some kind of enough is enough moment looking back in a few years time? I'm a bit pessimistic about this because I see the level of depoliticization of issues in Brazil right now as much deeper than what we see in the U.S. So even though the U.S. got Trump elected, uh, we, we saw this amazing march over over the weekend, you know, led by children and and young people and against, <laughs> against the liberation of guns. So I think that's really important. And in Brazil, if this happens, it's certainly going to be pro-gun because people are mm. either... Uh, going through the conservative wave just like that or they're being ma manipulated through fear and fear is a huge element right now and it's not just an element for one candidate it's actually permeating all of us a society so even though um, after Marielle's murder we saw a lot of people take to the streets of Rio Rio is sort of a particular place we can't use it to measure the whole country uh, it was her base it is a very fruitful ground for the PSOL and for, for for leftism, even the PT people in Rio, they were very solidaristic, so that was really good. Um, we saw some of it in Sao Paulo. We, uh, we've been seeing other mobilizations in Sao Paulo uh, related to uh, the pension uh, in Sao Paulo, so that was against the, um, the right-wing mayor in Sao Paulo. But even so, everything is still very um, loose. It's really hard to tie mm -hmm. things together in, into a movement. And uh, this difficulty is related to how when you take people to the streets, it's still usually the base we already have 
as a left and some some others that come together with that person who doesn't identify as left wing or right wing but they have their own principles they're not coming to the streets to say hey you can't just kill a city councilor they're not really coming or they're not really coming to say you can't just go and and take away our pension they're not saying those things so we, we're still going through a level of very low mobilization in brazil in general even though when we do have these particular things happening some level people take to the streets but not enough mm. which is a curious so, thing about brazil right now which is that on the one hand you have this very intense polarization while at the same time you have this low level of mobilization so it's kind of a curious thing in trying to portray to people i mean amongst people who are you know minimally politicized it's very polarized but amongst uh, whole, the whole rest of society that doesn't affect it as much yeah i think that plays out very much in social media where you see if there was a study that was done by uh, one of the data institutes here about the post about uh, marielli and it just showed that uh the, basically, there's two universes. There's the left-wing universe and the right-wing universe, and they don't interact. They don't talk to each other. And they basically, while the left-wing universe was bigger in the case of uh, Marielli's murder, it was also talking to itself. And social media fills the sort of uh, simulation of having a mass base with 2,000 likes and people sharing your stuff without actually broadening, while the right-wing is also speaking to itself. It's on its WhatsApp group spreading its lies but it's not really broadening out except just to demoralize and demobilize. Yeah, and I think there's there's another yeah. relevant thing in this as well, which is the degree to which Brazilians use social media is uh, very divided. So those uh, Brazilians who are online, which is some, something over 50% of the population, maybe 60% of the population, the use of social media is very high amongst that segment of the population. But then there's a whole other half of the population who aren't really print very much online at all. Um, and that kind of explains this weird um, combination of demobilization and intense polarization, I think. Yeah, we, we do have a problem. I agree with what Ben said, because it's it's a problem that we've had since June 2013, right? When we saw a lot of mobilization in the street, but that was reverberating online as well. And then people just thought, well, social network, yeah, democratic, so <laughs> inclusive, everyone's talking about it. And everyone forgot about the algorithm. And when we think about it, that algorithm was awesome because today it's <laughs> even worse, right? Uh, so <laughs> if we have a problem in our hands when it comes to this because the left is often fooling itself into believing that it's reaching more people than it actually is because we're just sharing our own content over and over to ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, the right is doing that as well, but the right has um, a point of advantage, which is the fact that it works with common sense. So if it works with common sense, you can actually pierce uh, other bubbles. Yeah, now, one of them being, being the, this, this whole issue with punitivism in Brazil, right? If you look at uh, the TV shows, uh, the new shows in Brazil, they're all about punishment. And they're all about saying, uh, we have to arrest everyone and we need to arm people and things like that. And a lot of people who aren't not, not really involved in politics, they just buy into that because they're fed up, right? So the issues have become depoliticized and then the conversations outside of social media, they're very, very depoliticized and i find that the left has a really hard time actually dealing with this truth because it hurts it's a it, it's not a comfortable truth for us it shows that we have a lot of things to pave still but it's important to recognize how big the problem is and i've seen that whenever something happens you know something snaps and we take a few more people a few more thousand people to the streets then i can already hear people 
people saying that that's it, we're gonna have a new June or something like that. And I said, well, even if we do have a new June, what was June anyway? Right. So we have a lot of problems to mobilize and it doesn't really matter. Okay, we're going to have like spontaneous spark and a million people here, a million people there. But where is the political project? Where is it going? Can we actually interpolate people? Jody Dean in her Crowds and Party book, she, she talks about crowd interpolation and I actually bring that into my work because I think it's fantastic. Uh, we had all of these processes around the Arab Spring, the Indignados in Spain, Occupy Wall Street, and June 2013 in Brazil. And we can, you can definitely have a lot of people in the streets, and you can, ha you can actually make politics sexy again. People are going to talk about it again, and they're going to be passionate about it. But it doesn't really mean that it's going to be a conduit to an actual political project. Mm -hmm. And I think that's my main problem with it. The left mm -hmm. hasn't been able to interpolate those crowds into a political project and the right has been slightly more effective because it's working with the depoliticized situation already they don't have to add a lot more to the pot things are still brewing as it is yeah mm -hmm. and in the case of brazil you already have the fact that the entire mainstream media here especially global which is the sort of television monopoly that dominates brazilian media is already on the uh, on the right and that that conduit of information that gets streamed into people's soap operas and daily lives is already biased towards these sort of new right medias and new right common senses that are being pushed around. Yes, uh, yeah, global is one of the main the main problems uh, to today, and the, what really infuriates people uh, who have some critique to offer of the PT government is that we feel that Lula had the power to dismantle the global uh, and the media oligopoly in general and he just chose to keep going with it. Mm. So may maybe a, a final question on Marielle before we move on to Lula. Um, what, what's your interpretation on the, I guess, the kind of the global splash that this story made? Because I think particularly on social media, um, we saw a whole range of celebs Getting back, uh, getting behind uh, the cause, with probably the inevitable washing out of of her socialism. What I guess, what's your what's your take on on how this uh, story travelled globally? Well, I definitely saw the washing out of her socialism, and it was abroad, but also in Brazil, right? Trying to make her more palatable. Uh, mm. But part of this mobilization around celebrities happened through pessoal activists too, like uh, uh, David Miranda, who was a city councilor with her, and he's really well connected. He was, um, he's uh, Glenn Greenwald's husband, and he knows Edward Snowden, and like he tried to make sure that people would know what's happening abroad. She tried yes. to make the police accountable and get them to actually investigate. So I think that was really, really positive, and uh, like I, I'm really happy to see names like Angela Davis supporting a proper in investigation to Marielle's death. The the issue, um, however, is really this whole idea of like just painting her as a regular human rights activist uh, and, and doing away with the important uh, the other side of her politics. And this happens sometimes, even like mentioning that she was a socialist but not really what party and we saw this with some like uh, appropriation by other parties of her image and forgetting that she was uh, you know she used to critique their own politics as well right so it's really strange how they used to like um, pick and choose 
uh, what quality of her work and her personality would be important to their narrative at the time. And we saw this. And unfortunately, I think that with international media, uh, this was bound to happen because it's not like they're going to be propagating that, you know, socialist people are dying because maybe it might bring more, more, more of a spotlight into the situation, right? Yeah, I mean, I think in particular what stood out was for the sort of appropriation of uh, narratives from, say, Black Lives Matter in the United States, but the very liberal side of Black Lives Matter is also a radical side that essentially uh, plays a sort of liberal role of uh, saying highlighting diversity and asking for like more diverse policing that sort of rhetoric was then projected onto Marielli who's a very radical militant who's done decades of work in these areas and was and it was like this the thing is she was killed for specific political acts involving a specific battalion and specific people who were killed by this battalion in a specific climate of fear and then it sort of gets uh she becomes a martyr, a stand-in, a symbol for uh, the murder of black woman, which symbolically is true. She was a black woman mm-hmm. who was killed in a country where black people are killed at a truly est- extraordinary rate. But she was also, as a black woman, a specifically uh, political person with a specific politics and a specific intellectual formation, which then gets removed and turned into an empty symbol, which can then really easily be uh, filtered into Globo or CNN or yeah. in an unthreatening way. Yes. Yeah, as, as if, as if the military... Go Sorry, ahead, go, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, as, as if uh, giving the military police some, uh, you know, more awareness, racial awareness classes would resolve the problem. Oh God, <laughs> Which doesn't make sense in Brazil, right? No. Because if you look at the, the, like, military police, a lot of black people go into the police to try to make a living. Yeah. Right? You, you, you know that the police recruits from the favelas. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's really complicated to talk about that kind of racial dynamic in Brazil as if it's the same as in the U.S. Because in Brazil, black people are a social minority, um, but they're a racial majority, right? So the, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, this kind of distribution just doesn't work the same. And it's also the fact that Marielle wasn't killed at random. It wasn't, you know, just like one bullet that hit her and because there was a misunderstanding from racial profiling right that if there was political profiling in this yeah. case right so um i think the black lives matter narrative is really important but it's more important in the sense uh that this was one of her banners she did black lives matter work she was telling people that we have to end the war on drugs we have to end the militarization because they're killing black people and this is the most important part to take away from it yeah excellent um, and I think that might be a good point to park the discussion specifically on Marielli and move on to the other sort of big event that we've had in Brazil over the past two weeks. Uh, this was the shooting at Lula's caravan touring the south of the country this week, which we already heard a bit about in the opening monologue, and you've made reference to it already, Sabrina. Uh, so let me put a pointed question to you. Do you see the vicious anti-pechismo behind the shooting at Lula's caravan and the right-wing reaction to it as part of a growing fascism in Brazil? And do you think that word is even appropriate? I think that in this particular case, it's appropriate, but I think it's inappropriate when people say, well, uh, the fascist state or we're done with democracy, there's no democracy anymore, because we don't really see this tied to the state, right? We we see it tied to um, a common sense, the way people are approaching politics, unless someone can actually point to me that there was like um, 
some articulation by people in the political power to influence these people to do this particular act of violence. I don't really see how you can tie like, oh, we're living under a fascist state, because this is one of the things that I, I heard this week, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has to do with how how like common the words are becoming and the meaning or the meaning is just getting lost right but anti-patism is a huge part of it and there is a part of when anti-patism um builds into like anti-leftism in general and it's just like a um, hatred towards the other the political other uh besides it being ultra politics in the sense that Zizek would put it like this militarization of policies and the other is your uh, absolute enemy and there's no way of moving forward with it but um without eliminating the other and it could be uh, in in symbolic terms or it could be physically as well right when it goes into the sense of physically, that's when we get these seeds of fascism. And I think this, it's important to emphasize it. It's really important to denounce it. But I wouldn't go forward with the panic that people are, you know, like, it, it's just complicated to me because I see that sometimes the left employs the same speech as the right in terms of creating a huge moral panic in society yeah. over things mm-hmm. in a way that makes people either mobilize through hate or through fear. And those are not good for the left. There's like a really effective mobilizers for the right, really effective, they circulate really fast. Um, but for those doing leftist work, those are terrible uh, mobilizers. A really good mobilizer in that sense would be antagonism. No, because think... it shows a contradiction in society. But, you know, ju- oh, we're all really scared because fascism is rising. So now we're going to just like, act together as if we're not different at all and just put any politics here ahead of us as a proposal. It doesn't really matter what it is because we have to stand together. And I see there's like a jumbling up of things happening right now. Yeah, I think that's completely right. And something we've talked about on this podcast before, which is that this uh, talking up of a fascist threat is a way of um, basically advocating for a sort of popular front sort of politics which uh, washes out any political distinctions and actually uh, impedes the development of sort of independent leftist politics I think Um, and maybe we see something of that in in Brazil Um, but I also agree with you Sabrina that I think it it was very scary I think the reaction to Lula shooting particularly from uh, Geraldo Alckmin the governor of Sao Paulo who is nominally a fairly centrist nominally a centrist center-right figure Um, but you know whose response to it was basically that if you pursue class politics, i.e. divisive politics, you deserve to have violence meted out to you. And I think that is at least in, the, in its kernel fascist. I, I, I don't see a way of, of describing it any other way. Yeah, this speech, definitely. A, a friend of mine made a, like, a brilliant comment yesterday, Caio Almendra, and he was talking about this idea of like a, a broad front and everything like that. And he said, well, the problem right here is that we're dealing with the front, this idea of a Frente Ampla, uh, just in the sense of, well, look at these three leftist parties. They can do it, right? And this is what we saw yesterday with... Um, the protests uh, that was supposedly like in favor of democracy and Lula, like you can never detach those things anymore. They always tied them together. And then uh, you saw like Guilherme Boulos as a pre-presidential candidate for the PSOL, Manuela Davila as a pre-presidential candidate for the Communist Party of Brazil, who I must say to the audience, uh, is not really, really communist. (laughs) You you need to draw a difference there. Yeah, it's more like a 
symbolic and then and then Lula from the workers party and they're joining hands and like there we go we're going like with the French ample against the, the uh, against fascism and well when we were talking about this um, unfortunately to actually be effective you need to get the democratic right on board mm-hmm. you really do and the problem in Brazil is that we are starting to think that maybe we don't have a democratic right anymore uh, the Alchemy statements, Doria statements, you know, the you know PSDB, a party who, that we usually identify as center-right, um, say, people saying things like that, it shows that we're starting to really tip the scales uh, towards the far right. And it's something that like, I explored in one of my videos in my YouTube channel uh, in terms of the, um, the idea of the lesser evil is that when you when you ratify the lesser evil every time you end up really pushing the scales towards evil yeah and then this ends up being your parameter and this is what what's happening right now actually like people say well we have to vote for lula and we need to um defend lula's right to be a candidate against judicial persecution and i think defending him against judicial political persecution is one thing defending uh, the candidacy is another thing. They could go together, but it shouldn't be a precondition for you to defend the other. And then uh, we have to do this because Lula is the only one who could beat Bolsonaro, those ultra-conservative guy, right? And then it's this idea, well, we, we keep ratifying the lesser evil because uh, we just keep moving towards the right, and it's even worse because before Lula could beat Fernando Henrique Cardoso, and then he could he could beat uh, uh, other PSDB candidates, and Dilma could uh, uh, beat other PSDB candidates, which was the center right. And now we're talking about him uh, defeating the ultra right guy, and then the center right guy is saying things similar to the ultra right guy. So things are actually moving in that direction, and that's really scary. So it's more in terms of the political consciousness of society that's come to accept certain things that I think that when Lula first got elected in 2002, people wouldn't be accepting so easily. Yes, I mean, on this point, I just wanted to add uh, something, and then maybe uh, you have some thoughts on this. I think uh, something I've also noticed in Brazil is a sort of like uh, deep political pessimism, particularly from the side of uh, Pete, in regards to the growing uh, conservatism in Brazilian society, in the sense there's a belief that we are just so conservative and backwards since the 2016 coup that we couldn't possibly win over people's imagi- people from the other side. There isn't this uh, center that we can win over. There isn't a so there's sort of like a symbolic uh, idea that uh, we sort of consign to losing these people. There's nothing we could have done in the past and could do going forward other than to do what we already did in order to uh, change the current uh, political crisis in Brazil. And I definitely see this dynamic, both in regards to what you're talking to when the Pete, who ironically have always been in power, a party of the sort of moderate center-left, which have sought consolation rather than antagonism in government. And as you mentioned before, for instance, they didn't target global media monopolies in power. They rather sought to uh, reduce them through making an alliance of sorts. Uh, in this dynamic, what do you th- do? You think this uh, sort of analysis of being put forward has some measure, and also do you think that uh, there is a another narrative that can uh, happen in the climate of growing authoritarianism and the sort of more committed uh, institutional neoliberalism, which has been established against uh, in the harshest form against any democratic principles, even if 
the form of austerity that we are experiencing now was originally introduced by Dilma's Pete government. Then I agree with you, but I would actually um, suggest that this tendency by the PT to uh, actually predates the coup. Uh, the pessimism has gotten more extreme, but it's all, it was always been there because of their focus on uh, the reproduction of power at the institutions, right? So ever since Lula got elected the first time, and then people would push for more radical positions, they would say, well, if we do that, they're going to oust us, right? If we do that, there's going to be a coup. Uh, and then the U.S. would intervene in, in Venezuela. It's like, see, if we do that, you know, it might happen, that might happen to us as well. So they always use that kind of argument to curb um, not only the policies, but also people's imaginary about what's possible. Like if there's an alternative, can we do something different? So they, were, uh, they always use the example of like not a proper correlation of forces. The difference is that now we really don't have a correlation of forces. Now the, the material, re material reality really has changed in the sense that uh, conservatism is a real strong force in Brazil today, even those who tried to deny it in the past saying, well, but we did elect a bunch of uh, progressive people in 2014. And yeah, but we also elected the most conservative uh, Congress uh, since the military dictatorship, right? So then now there's like this palpable reality that justifies their pessimism. But I think they got too comfortable with that line because the pessimistic line um, forecloses all their possibilities from outside of the PT, right? So, like, if people from the PSOL would say something else or from the actual Communist Party, uh, the Brazilian Communist Party would say something else, then they would just say, well, they're, they're utopic. Like, people in the left using that term. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're just utopic because that's not possible. Look what's happening. If we don't deal with these bankers, they're just going to overthrow us. The financial capital is too strong and things like that. And then... Um, Today is actually the reality, but they tend to bring this linear idea that, well, we actually, this is the absurd part, what bothers me the most, is that because they did end up ousted through the coup, and uh, Juma Hussef, uh, Hussef uh, got impeached and everything, they, some of them are claiming that, well, she got impeached because we were too much of a leftist party and we were mm. bugging them, and, but well, most re most analysis point to the opposite. Like you didn't go far enough with the, um, you know, with the counter reforms and like the counter reforms and the neoliberal project. And so they had to put someone else uh, instead there. But they they were only able to do that because you kept demobilizing people from the idea of what's possible. Yeah. So there's a there's this huge trap that the PT built and got trapped inside of it. And the ironic part is that it seems to have escaped part of the trap, partly escaped the trap, I, I, I say, because the PT feels a bit legi legitimated that their, what they said was a threat actually happened, mm. but not for the reasons they said it was going to happen. Well, I mean, and the irony, of course, was that Juma, you know, when, when she was president, and particularly in her second term, she did everything basically that the center-right wanted her to do um, as soon as she took office again. Um, so, you know, they, they kind of... It ends up being a very self-serving sort of rhetoric um, that, well, we could, that from the PT, that they could have done no other. 
But I think it's also worth spelling out what has happened with the political center in Brazil, because um, for those who maybe aren't aware um, or maybe, you know, if their news is filtered through a lot of international media, they still tend to present the center-right, for example, the PSDB, the, the nominally Social Democratic Party, as a fairly center, center-right party. Um, but as we've already alluded to, they've been pushing ever further rightwards. And I think they've been doing this in, in three different ways. It seems that they've become more author- the center has become more authoritarian in terms of matters of civil liberties and policing and so on. They've also become harder neoliberals um, economically, abandoning any commitment they may have had to the to the social state. Um, I think there was maybe a sort of an understanding, a compromise built over the 2000s um, between the center right and the center left that certain assistentialist programs wouldn't be cut and so on. That's now been broken with. Um, and it's also become completely anti-democratic uh, with this sort of institutional rupture that the impeachment represented and kind of breaking with all Republican norms and, and so on. So... Maybe you could just explain a little bit um, how this sort of came about. How did the the center just fall away from from Brazilian politics? Uh, you know that you see the center right basically not even defending the the sort of nineteen eighty eight constitution anymore. But that's part of the problem, right? With depoliticization, I, I know a lot of people aren't comfortable when we when we bring the 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 analysis of depoliticization because it makes it look well. I, but, but people are interested in politics. People are talking about politics, but it's not the same. Depoliticization happens when you remove people from uh, the center of the action, from being political subjects, for actually uh, having an impact on society, right? And this part part of this happened because we. Um, after Lula got elected, there was a lot of hope that we start building popular power, and that never happened. We had some instances for um, consulting people on public matters and things like that, uh, a few uh, conversations and open dialogue with a few social movements, but we're still in the sense of, well, you're a citizen uh, when you vote, and you have to vote, and then you get represented and so on. But at the same time that uh, you're, you're pushing for things and the government saying, no, you can't have them because the, the time isn't favorable. And then you stop pushing for things and you start listening to the people in the opposition who say, well, actually, you can't have that because this is bad or because, you know, these people in power, they're really bad people too. And then if the government is not effective to actually uh, tend to its base, the opposition becomes stronger and starts reproducing common sense. And it's something that uh, was happening very slowly on the ground and uh, for a while because the PT kept winning elections, people weren't noticing uh, enough. But really small things, in, uh, um, for example, in terms of, well, uh, Bolsa Familia, the conditional cash transfer program, it's really something that benefits lazy people. Mm. And then you'd have people who were just a little bit above the the income line to actually need both a familia reproducing something like this because it legitimized them as a worker as something who works really hard and doesn't need the help of the government so like few things like that they, they happened and they kept happening and no one was paying attention to the point that uh when people said well this is um it, this is the middle class talking uh all of a sudden they realized Realized, well, I hope they have realized finally, it's not just the middle class talking. Part of this common sense has made its way to the base. When they say that the poor people love Lula, this is they're talking about particular poor people. A lot of people really pissed at Lula, be it for corruption because they 
they really into the narrative and they bought all the narrative. They bought all of the narrative about corruption under Dilma as well. Or they're just because they started um, getting some gains under the government and they all got cut away under the same government. So at the same time that like Lula brought ProUni, which is contradictory because it's a, uh, it was a program for um, helping uh, poor black people get into the universities, but private universities, so there's a contradiction. It was positive, right? The the the, the 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 in general it was positive because it, it brought people to the university. But then brought people to the university and then you start cutting research funds. So those people who want to stay learning and studying, oh wow, not so much. And then you still kept ha kept having problems with other things. So everything was still very limited. There's this frustration, and I think the right was able to get that, put it in a package, and transform that into very effective opposition. Not just in the sense that, that the center-right used to do. is like, well, our way is likely different. No, they're really like, no, our way is very different. Look how bad this was. Our way is way better. So it created part of this polarization in society that feeds on depoliticization because it feeds on people not really realizing the very intricate parts of how the conditional cash transfer program works and how actually it's validated by the World Bank. It's not really a leftist program. People don't know what what it actually is to be leftist anymore in Brazil. They associate really simple center-left things with communism. And then it, this is part of the, the, the polarization. So if you stand up for human rights, let's say, and, um, and you, you don't have any other politics, then all of a sudden, oh, I look at those commies, right? It's really strange how this is happening, but it's part of the depoliticization in, in the ultra politics. You take away the actual meaning of things and you push it to the, the polar opposite and you pit people, you pitch people against each other, right? And this is a problem that we have right now. And for the center right, this was a blessing because it kept losing strength. Uh, since the the PT was actually going forward with a few uh, politics in the market, they were not very different. Like we see this uh, this continuance of some policies from Fernando Henrique Cardoso to Lula to Dilma, especially through Dilma because she really went above and beyond uh, for certain things. Um, and you see that. And so even at the same time, if you see some social assistance and some good social policy that did make a difference and impacted a lot of people positively, um, they get outshone by these neoliberal policies and then the center-right can't really engage with them anymore, so they need to reinvent themselves. So I see this part of like an actual pro project uh, to reinvent themselves, to take over the situation. And we have actually a lot of ties to think tanks in the U.S., trying to bring these policies and shape the minds of people for towards individualism and hatred of collectivism and um, and then really changing the meaning of things to make it easier for people to hate anything left. Yes, I think um, just to expand a bit on this, uh, in terms of the Brazilian center-right, although uh, we don't have the time to go into the depth and the nature of Lava Jato and the corruption politics and scandals in Brazil, the center-right establishment is almost as discredited as the Pater to a degree, people. And right now, the center-right, in my view, in my opinion, is doing what I call the Tinder strategy, is that they can't find a candidate, so they keep on swiping right until someone matches. So it was Alckmin. That's awesome. Udurio. That's an awesome metaphor. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> it, was a, it was Doria. It was a hooky. 
and now they, they it, now maybe they go and meanwhile like there's all these candidates emerging on the far right like Flavio Horsha or Bolsonaro but the center right is like hoping by default they can slip in but they really are lacking either a program a vision or even somebody a Macron a sort of outsider figure with at least enough charisma uh opportunism and default to come out as the guy who can be the establishment candidate against the both the far left and the far right because uh, of course lula has been transformed from a sort of moderate champion to uh compared to hugo chavez to a sort of leftist firebrand and on the other end you have uh, the far right which is represented by bolsonaro so they kind of like that sort of dynamic that you saw in France, where it was Macron versus the Front National, and you could slip in by default. They can't even find somebody with enough charisma to even uh, pull anything, anything nearing uh, what the, uh, the candidates of the left and the right are doing. Instead, they're offering Alckmin, who, as we mentioned before, is a sort of singularly boring figure who is uh, seen as a committed administrator and somebody who's tried and tested rather than anyone who has uh, inspires any sort of passions in political life. Yeah, and sadly in Brazil you've had enough, uh, you've also had uh, sort of blowhard columnists calling for a, that Brazil needs a Macron as well, which yeah. is something that you've seen like across the West where every kind of brain dead, ideas light, kind of lib- center, centrist liberal goes, oh, we, need, we just need to get a Macron. If we get a Macron, everything's going to be fine, as if Macron's doing so splendidly in France. Yeah. Well, but they, they love they love that kind of person, right? Uh, Macron and Trudeau, and and even Macri, right? Even yeah. though Macri says more 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 to the side of Tamer than than Trudeau and Macron, yeah. but there's a, there's a really interesting dynamic. I, I love this metaphor that that Ben used. I'm gonna I'm gonna borrow it from you and and cite you eventually, but it's um the the issue is that. Um, if you look at it, the, those people who identify as like center right 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 wing liberals in Brazil, they're having a really hard time right now because wherever they look, uh, they find liberal conservatives instead. And then the actual people who used to to look, you know, the their proper representatives, they're either boring, so they don't really represent a good um, a good leadership. Because you know, alchemy winning in São Paulo over and over is just the fact that PSDB wins in São Paulo over and over. It's not really alchemy, right? And then, but you look at the um, that right-wing young social movement uh, called the uh, MBL, right, the, the Free Brazil movement. Uh, the idea with it, like, it came from Students for Liberty in the U.S., and they're actually, like, liberal conservatives. So they they started positing themselves as very liberal at first, and they saw that wasn't really getting as much heat. So they really bought into the conservative thing, and they're driving on it. So, it, so it's hard because a lot of people who were with the, the MBLE at first because they saw themselves as right-wing liberals and then all of a sudden they're like, what, wait, is this what you're defending? And then just like really simple, empty, anti-communist rhetoric uh, posing as politics, which is really bad. And then you had a problem right now, which is the party that... Um, embraced Bolsonaro as a pre-candidate for, for, for the presidency, there were a lot of people inside of the party who identified the party as a right-wing liberal party. And then also they're there they're because they want to win and because they want to get more congressmen out of it. So like they, they're, they have a political strategy for it, right? They just embraced Bolsonaro just like that and then all, a lot of people just had to leave. So it's really it's it's becoming as, as it's hard for us in the left in Brazil having 
to deal with all of the, the contradictions of the Workers' Party and the growing and how the growing anti-Workers' Party sentiment always um, ends up reverberating into anti-communist sentiment as well. But for the classic um, center-right liberal in Brazil, things aren't so easy either. So they don't really know where to go. And like, it's funny because um, I'm not really sure like who would actually represent them. We had news that maybe, you know, Luciano Huki, who's the, the TV guy, wanted to run. But I thought maybe because he kind of has that, that look and it's like the depoliticized aspect as well that would please them. But I'm not sure. And then you find that the... the, the MBL is supporting the president of like this large corporation, Riachuelo, who also has no charisma. So mm. for me, he's just like alchemy, but the guy has tons of money, right? Yeah, yeah so, he, he's he's just like a rich guy who reckons himself who reckons himself a bit of an intellectual. But you read his columns, and it's like the the sort of dumbest um, kind of right wing conspiracy theorizing about the left, brands about cultural Marxism, and I don't know what else. Yeah, my friend describes him as a new Trojan horse Marxist theorist, saying that every sort of like bit of cultural degenerate degeneration in Brazil, including like nudity and art galleries, is just another Trojan horse for Marxism. I think it's he has this sort of complex and he wants to live up to his teacher Alberto Campos, but he's just really an idiot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- but that yeah, also and, it's, it, and those those are the guys who like may get a lot of votes. Uh, but that that's the thing. Bolsonaro might be getting a lot of votes from the right because the center right can't come up with like an interesting person to regular right wing people. Yeah. Yeah, so and so this guy's also a clothing tycoon as well. So for British listeners, he's kind of a Philip Green um, with a soapbox, right? That's I think how. Yeah, how that's we, basically how, it. We, how we could describe him. But I mean, this this illustrates the degree to which the at least the, the field for for the presidential race is incredibly fragmented. And we're just talking about left fragmentation, which is we'll come on to a little bit um, very shortly. But it's also the case amongst the right, as Ben described it, the sort of Tinder strategy. You've got all the, they're just kind of flying kites, and the kind of people who who really have some pull in, in Brazil, for example, the, the head of, of the global media conglomerate, you know, I think they're also trying to wait and see and see who kind of might catch fire slightly and just back them. Yeah, I mean, like uh, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, the former president, former president of Brazil, a uh, once lauded intellectual of the left and somebody who still t- is taken very seriously in intellectual circles in the United States and Europe, not so much in, the, in Brazil on the left anymore, but uh, he spent months trying to recruit a talk show host as the savior of the Brazilian liberal establishment, which just shows how desperate they are. Yeah, and I think, yeah, for, for all that we might be gloomy about the state of the Brazilian left, I think it's also important to realize the degree to which at least the establishment Brazilian right is also a complete mess, which is something that Ben's alluded to. But I think actually George wanted to come yeah. in on, on a question here in reference to this. Yeah, so um, I guess I was particularly struck by Zizek's recent BBC video, and if listeners haven't haven't seen this, they should they should watch it, um, where he identifies, I guess, the defining coordinates of European politics as a kind of absent, quite fragmented, very weak left, which then leaves the terrain open to the defining struggle being between the liberal establishment and right populism. And I guess the, the sort of the, my know-nothing question um, is... Does this, to what extent does this work in Brazil as a, as a kind of an, a reading of the consequences of the, the fragmented left? 
Well, I haven't seen the, the BBC video, but I do use a Zizekian framework uh, for some of my research, right? I do this really weird mingle between Zizek and Gramsci. Um, but yeah, I, I see something like this happening, right? Our left is really weak, but the problem is that um, since the, the right wing is also very, very fragmented, it is conservatism rising. And I think this is more worrisome for us. I, I'm not. I'm not really in favor of the the theory that he put forward against. You know, like well, if Trump wins, then maybe society will wake up and something. I don't think this was going to happen in Brazil. I think uh, our tendency is to have like some really, really, really bad years. It's just like in the U.S., people are, are, are having some really bad years, right? So I wouldn't go as far to say, well, okay, that, that's kind of legitimate. It might lead to something better. I don't think so. I think the tendency here is that there's like no proper organization in the left that, they, that can take over. The Workers' Party is way weaker than it was, uh, let's say, five, six years uh, ago. Um, some of it has to do with the fact, you know, like the country is in a really shitty spot in terms of an economic crisis and something like that. But like, it's not like Tamer is making it any better, right? Like none of his proposals are for actually taking the, the country away of an economic crisis. It's for extracting the most profit under the economic crisis as possible yeah and but people don't seem to be really aware of it so like economic talks about economics in brazil they're very depoliticized and they become um in terms of speech this like really simple conversation about like private versus public when it really goes way beyond that and because it's it's coming to this and um, that a playground for the center left and the center right to, uh, uh, because they do tend to put in those terms um it's weaker when you have other signifiers that are strong in society right now, such as public security, which really helps mm -hmm. Bolsonaro, which is like family values because moral panics are very effective in Brazil. We're talking about a country that's extremely Catholic, uh, rising in um, evangelicals, and um, people really buy into moral panics involving children. And we see that's being used, like like the conversation about Trojan horse that, that Ben was talking about. You see how that that's being used as a way to cover up a lack of program, even in the yeah. right. And I think it's worth being so, really explicit about this on that point about the lack of program from the right, that the Brazilian establishment lack, completely lacks legitimacy. I mean, the, the, the degrees of support for Congress, for the president, are extremely low. Um, and then there's also the sort of anti-political mood of rejection of political parties and so on, which is associated with it. So it's almost striking that in such a context, one would expect it to be an open goal for the left to be able to, well, to take power effectively, that the institutional rupture um, that the, the sort of the soft coup uh, represents would have been a real opportunity. And... It, but it, what it has also demonstrated is the degree to which the Brazilian right hates democracy. It's basically intolerable for it. Um, and I th in that situation, it, it's a very weird thing to try to communicate to, to sort of an outside audience. Uh, the degree to which the right and the establishment is very weak and the left is also fragmented. And so I guess trying to mediate those different parts is, is quite a tricky thing in trying to explain contemporary Brazil. Yeah, we have just uh, alluded to it earlier, but to say it explicitly, uh, the sort of willingness of the Brazilian uh, liberal establishment to tear up elements of the 1988 constitution and sort of social pact made there has transformed the Peter from once the biggest threat to the established order into the last defenders of the Brazilian social pact 
made in 1988. Yeah, and I mean, I'd like to, you know, to say to the Brazilian right, as they like to say to the left, that if you hate democracy so much, why don't you go to Cuba? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, which is a sad thing, right? It's like um, people just build on these symbolisms and they really can't develop what it actually is and what is the actual meaning of democracy. I remember having a conversation with Alex and Ben uh, I think maybe a month ago or a little bit more when we were discussing we we're discussing implications of the, the discourses around Lula's conviction and the idea like I, I I feel very strongly that people don't know what democracy stands for anymore and a part of this is because we spent a lot of time in the recent past fighting for democratic rights because of the military dictatorship and once we attained them we started suppressing some some more non-institutional forms of democracy in order to sustain institutional power. So if people are fed up with institutions, they're fed up with parties and things like that, democracy itself becomes an, like an empty signifier in their, in their lives. So it could just be anything, mm -hmm. right? And then they could just say, well, the left is anti-democratic because look at Cuba or something like that, right? And then like people have no idea about like the assembly in Cuba and, th and things like that. And then they call in Venezuela, it must be a dictatorship. But at the same time, you see the left here calling Tamer a dictator. I'm like, what is this? You know, yeah. everyone is just playing around with these terms, the, the terms of democracy, the terms of dictatorship, of fascism. And then uh, this, this is definitely not helping us make an impact on how people perceive society. Because if we just use very simple terms like that with contradictory meanings and the, the right does the same, people are just going to go in any direction because none of us are just going to be convincing enough. And then we can't formulate something having a popular base, a political base to back us up. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, I mean, I think that might be a, a good point to leave it on. And uh, it, we're going to have to come back to discussing Brazil over the coming months um, because there's a hell of a lot of crazy here and the, and the crazy increases by the day it's, so uh, it's only march it's only yes. it's only march and, and, and elections march. are in october and the election won't even get really really started until after the world cup exactly so uh and we've got an episode on the world cup coming up in june as well so that's uh, to look forward to well, anyway I mean, thank actually on the positive note brazil did defeat germany exactly uh coming back to seven to one bit <laughs> by bit truly inspiring new mascots <laughs> All right, Sabrina, uh, that's been brilliant. That was really fascinating and very insightful on a whole range of questions. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us. And we'll have to have you on again sometime soon. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for inviting me. I think it was a really productive chat. I really enjoyed that. So uh, if you ever invite me again, I'll be back. Excellent. We're definitely going to have you back. Cool. All right, so thanks very much again to Sabrina. Uh, now we're just gonna have a little chat between ourselves, uh, Ben, myself, Alex, and George, uh, about the kind of broader global implications of what we've discussed and whether there's any more generalizability to, to what we've learned about uh, Brazil today. Um, so firstly to Ben. He... So um, just earlier when we were discussing about Sabrina's use of the concept ultra politics, I mentioned the sort of deep uh, pessimism that comes from Pater in regards to the ability to change anything and also how uh, the more right-wing and the more uh, conservative Brazilian society goes, uh, the less the left has the ability to believe it can actually change things because they have to write everyone off. I see this dynamic not just happening in uh, Brazil, but I also see it, for instance, happening in the United Kingdom and to a great extent 
the United States, the United Kingdom, there's this sort of reading of Brexit, which uh, sort of negates it all to sort of primordial racism, meaning that we basically all we can do is sort of uphold our own moral purity in the face of the coming abyss or seek to reverse democracy itself in terms of taking back the Brexit vote. In the case of the United States, I think the where Sabrina highlighted the um, gun, the anti-gun uh, um, uh, sort of pro-gun control rally that happened at the weekend is a course for uh, an interesting political moment in the US. I have a somewhat different counter for, because this wasn't a left-wing moment from my own experience with the left. With the left, for instance, they're so tied to the belief that the United States, I mean, the American left is very teeny and has had no his, historical uh, sort of... Uh, equivalent to the strength of Brazilian left, both in social movements and in taking power, there, uh, so believes it's unable to win any democratic values, that it's uh, reduced to basically claiming the United States or Trumpism represents a proto-fascist phenomenon and saying we can't, we shouldn't do gun control because we have to take arms. We can't actually convince anybody of our own ideas. And I see that sort of phenomenon increasingly in the United States, that people are so wedded to this idea that the United States is so primordially conservative that we can't possibly change anyone's mind so the most we can mm. do is uh, either you know shame shun or shoot yeah even if I can't imagine any of these people actually shooting anyone well yeah and thankfully I mean, yeah no, and if you stop you know maybe if, if the US left stop being weirdos on Twitter talking about various forms of identity and, and divisions of gender that they that they concoct uh, they might have a little bit more contact and purchase with uh, the broader American public yeah I mean if you can't even like convince like uh, non-political voters that uh, everyone owning an assault weapon is probably not a good idea. I mean, uh, you really have very little moral traction. Yeah, no, and I think that's a good point that there's that there's a certain naturalization of popular conservatism and uh, a failure to sort of historicize where that comes from, right? So that, you know, in, in Brazil, um, for example, to take one, one specific example, which Sabrina referenced, is growing ev- evangelism in Brazil, which is a major factor, uh, which we didn't discuss really. Uh, maybe we have to return to that at a, at a later date. But that is, you know, they, they, the evangelical churches are, are a big deal in Brazil. And it's a way of, of kind of forging community, of, of giving a sense of sort of popular ideology of success um, for a lot of working class people in Brazil. And if you don't reckon with that and understand how that has come in to fill a void that was left, then you don't really understand how how you might mobilize and sort of challenge that and start the sort of basic organizational work which can start to challenge that. You know, it's sort of naturalized as, well, the people are really conservative and us sort of liberal or left-wing intellectuals are, you know, way more liberal and so we don't have any contact and, uh, you know, there's no chance of us actually winning. Um, and and really, I think the, the challenge is to put forward a popular program uh, which speaks to basic economic issues. I mean, I think this is the striking thing looking at the election this year is that there is no economic debate about Brazil right now. It's, you know, security has come to dominate the agenda, which of course totally favors the right. The left doesn't and isn't really able to have a substantial answer to it because you can make all the right points about, you know, you need education, you need social services, you need to demilitarize the police and all this. But when you're being shot at, you know, in your kind of daily life, that's not a very substantial sort of answer. So the train has to be fought on on sort of economic issues. And right now, there is no developmentalist program uh, being put forward by the Brazilian left. And that's a real sort of absence there that, that there where there could be much more popular yeah, purchase. Just to jump on that to sort of elaborate into two dynamics. One is that uh, 
as Sabrina alluded to earlier, the campaign on Pertes is essentially being fought about Lula's right to uh, run and being the sort of father of Brazilian democracy and featuring yeah. as... Bring back the good old days. Yeah, as the face of the 1988 settlement, essentially. Yeah. So it's basically being so personalized, Lula isn't even forced to uh, tie himself down to any sort of economic provinces beyond the sort of vague rhetoric about uh, reversing the Temer completely reactionary and absurd and harsh economic reforms or if they can be called reforms rather than just a full-scale war on the poor. Yeah, it's slash and burn. Second thing about securitization, it should be probably noted, and maybe some of my friends might be a little bit upset for me for pointing this out, that the securitization and militarization of the police, particularly in the case of Rio, was started by Peter. The intervention, the pacification policy all occurred under Peter. It, this is just an escalation of that. And furthermore, on this note, the anti-terror laws and some of the harshest measures the military and the police used to uh, inundate themselves from accountability were also put forward by a center-left government trying to uh, reinforce its credibility and security issues, which is something, of course, British and American listeners with the experience of New Labour's harsh policies, as well as uh, Bill Clinton's own uh, introduction of like the war on drugs and just locking everyone up, can find some traction to. Mm-hmm. A center-left in power often feels a need to prove its uh, balls, for lack of a better metaphor, by being tough on crime, even if better wasn't nearly as bad as New Labour or uh, the sort of New Democrat Clintonite era. Yeah, indeed. And I think to draw out another sort of... Um more generalizable point, I think, is the degree to which, and this is really striking over the past couple of years in Brazil, the degree to which democracy, particularly social democracy, um, but even democracy itself, is intolerable to the elite. And I think the the narrowing of the ground of what is of of, of you know what was liberal democracy is a really striking factor, uh, not just in Brazil but more broadly. I mean, we can see the the sort of attacks that uh, Corbyn receives for what are ultimately pretty moderate social democratic policies, which would have been um, not particularly in the, to the left in the 1970s. There would have been Tory policies in the 1960s. Well, indeed. Um, and th- just the, the, the closing of, of, of space for social democracy is a really striking thing. Mm, that's, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really, really good point. And there's also, I guess, maybe a point about the European left looking, looking to Brazil and, and thinking, well, this is part of the, the global south. Potentially, this is one of the one of the locations where you're going to have this this real upsurge of a of a of an agency which which could be, I don't know could become global in some way and could could really I guess shake up the the, the, the dying social democracy in in the UK for example and, and elsewhere in Europe. So I think a, a lot of the a lot of what we heard about the the left in in Brazil being fragmented is probably cause for for pessimism because if anything, there's been a bit of an argument, maybe a few years ago, more than now, that this that Brazil, this is one of the the, the centres where potentially you're going to see this this real, really unified, powerful, potentially uh, international um, working class set of movements, which obviously things don't work that that unproblematically and that smoothly. I mean, I just want to point out that as fragmented and weak as the Brazilian left is, as compared to what it was, because you still here have social movements with over a million members that can win victories. I mean, as Sabrina pointed out, they were a, the victory was won this week. So even in that state, it's still markedly more impressive than most Western European lefts. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Which is also, I mean, it's a it is sort of, sort of like, well, the point is, is like, I mean, if they can't get their act together, it just shows how much more needs to happen in some of these countries in the West. 
if you can't even get like a 10,000 person movement going to win a relatively easy battle when you have like MTST or MST facing down a bunch of armed goons and winning in massive like 10,000 people occupations here. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, and again, to re- recapitulate the point about the weakness of the establishment, which is something that is shared uh, in Brazil as much as in, in Europe and possibly in the United States as well, that the, the cause for optimism is precisely the pessimistic point about the failure of the center to hold. And that does provide an opportunity to, to fill that space and, and for the left to seize the banner of democracy and, and the upholder of, of, of a liberalism which cannot be realized by liberals. Yeah. That is a good place to end. Okay, and that's really a good place yeah. to end. All right. You can't really say anything after that. That was that was really nicely put. So, yeah. yeah okay. We're sort of punching the air. Yeah. We're not very enthusiastic. <laughs> shows historical pessimism. Yeah, I think, I think our listeners will be kind of gritting their teeth and being like, "Ooh, maybe there's a maybe there's a chance after all." <laughs> there's a chance after all. All right, that's it for Alpha Bunga Bunga this <laughs> week. We're back next week talking about. Hungary, uh, looking forward to the upcoming elections. That's next Sunday. Uh, And then after that, we're back with Portugal uh, as the sort of odd one out, the one who has managed to have a left government challenging austerity uh, amongst the European pigs. Uh, So lots more to come from us. Catch you later. Bye-bye.